Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm comedian Shane Moss, and thanks for joining me on the Here We Are podcast for part two at the Fort Worth Zoo with my special co-host, Sophia Rockland, who is joining me for two, three weeks here and there throughout the year for our Head Talks tour, comedy plus psychedelics plus science equals Head Talks. Find out more at shanemoss.com. If you go to show dates, you can see all the different shows that I'm doing, including Head Talks, Stand Up Science, regular Stand Up, and just so you know, this uh, right around the corner coming up Next week, February 4th, we are starting in Savannah, Georgia, Charleston, South Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina, where you can see us doing both stand-up science and head talks, by the way. Moving to Charlotte, Athens, Atlanta, Chattanooga, Nashville, where you can see both um, two different options for times for head talks. And on February 14th, doing a special Valentine's Day edition of Stand Up Science. If you're looking for a fun date night in Nashville. And uh, yeah, see you Friday night. And then Fort Smith, Arkansas. Fayetteville, Arkansas. And then doing Oklahoma City Stand Up Science before Austin, Texas. Where February 21st. We're doing another head talks, and then two days later, stand up science, and then uh, and then that's it. It'll be stand up science again until May, and then we start head talks up again. Um, all right, so check that out. Oh man, I had a I don't I guess this is good news. Been having issues. There's been sometimes recording outros, sometimes doing things. There's been like one mic that I've been recording with that sounds weird, and poor Jimmy Fro has been having to edit. Make sure and check out the Jimmy Fro podcast, by the way. But he's been having to edit and change things around to make it so my voice doesn't sound super weird. And we didn't know what was going on. And I'm like buying things to clean my recorder and checking settings and doing this and that. And I just figured it out today that it was because I bought this one new fancy microphone that must be for some specific sound. I just don't know things about how audio stuff works, but I figured out the culprit. So within any of these episodes coming up, it's not going to be every one or anything like that, but within some of these episodes here and there, there might be one person's voice sounding just a little bit different um, than normal. And so just in case you're noticing it and finding it strange, it's been resolved. So um, yeah, there's that exciting day for me. Always good to learn a new thing. So enjoy today's episode. It's a fun one. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I am venturing around the Fort Worth Zoo 
once again with my guest co-host for a couple episodes here, Sophia Rockland, anthropologist, author of One Plant's Dream. Sophia, what did we get into so far today? I can't even. <laughs> well, we started the morning by visiting some rhinos, um, very handsome specimens, and, uh, and some hippos. Yep, just your average morning. Just another Tuesday. I'm very excited about this podcast today. We have two guests from the Fort Worth Zoo. Amy Koslick and Rebecca Gonzalez are joining us. Hello. Good morning. Thank good you morning. for being on the good show. Good morning. Thank you for having us. So you guys work with the Monarch Project here at the zoo, but you, you both also do uh, individually do some kind of different things. Why don't you give people a little bit of a background? I don't know who wants to go first. Yeah, I'll go first. Yeah. yeah. So I'm Rebecca. I have worked at the zoo for about five years now. I'm in the education department. So my main role with this project specifically is outreach education. But I also work on camp. So summer camp, uh, we've got three-year-olds all the way up to high schoolers. I work a lot with student programs and our volunteers. What's a summer camp? like here yeah so summer camp is we have about two thousand kiddos that come for about 10 weeks yeah and we do some fun different curriculum each week they go out into the zoo they do all the different zoo activities did Uh, you hear that mom and dad are you listening to this (laughs) i never got to go to a zoo summer camp yeah they get to go (laughs) and and play you know in the zoo all day long it's pretty fun that's amazing true that's so cool amy Well, I actually have a very convoluted background. I don't know how much of it you would like. The whole thing. All of it. Your origin story. (laughs) My origin story. Well, I am from New York State. I went to Cornell University for my bachelor's degree. And I always knew I wanted to work with animals, but I actually never wanted to be a veterinarian. So I was looking for a different route. And one of my courses was an animal nutrition class, and it fascinated me. Um, I even liked the biochemistry that was involved with it. So I took that class and I was like, this is interesting, but I'm not necessarily sure I want to work with um, meat animals or production animals. So I thought about the zoo nutrition route and I actually ended up going in that direction, taking a zoo nutrition class. And I thought that was fascinating that you would work with longevity of a species. And there's just so many different kinds of zoo animals that um, I just found it very fascinating. Um, So then I ended up um, going from Cornell to National Zoo in Washington, DC. And I worked on a master's degree at the University of Maryland College Park, um, initially with desert tortoises. Um, But then because they are a um, threatened species, I ended up um, not being able to do specific research per se with them. So I finished off my degree with striped bass, (laughs) a little bit different. And then when I finished my um, degree at Maryland, um, Ann Ward, who's director of nutritional services here at the zoo, who you also talked with, was starting a nutrition lab at the Fort Worth Zoo. And so I actually moved from Washington, D.C. to Fort Worth, Texas, and started my job in the nutrition lab. And I worked there for about 10 years full time. I did nutrition research, um, did a bit of field work in nutrition. um, And then after that, I went part time for a little while to have two daughters, Lucy and Mia, and then wanted to come back full time. So at that point, um, Taryn Wagner, who's the director of animal programs here at the zoo, Um, hired me part-time 
and I stayed part-time with the nutrition department. So I have almost two different jobs here at the zoo. And part of my job with Taryn was the monarch conservation work, um, which I then teamed up with Rebecca. And about, I'd say, five years ago, we started working together on this project. Seems like you guys need to know so much about so many different things. It, it seems like if, it's, if you're at a zoo, you probably can't really specialize in just one species. Is that, is that right? That's how my job has worked out. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. There's so many different types of species. And you think about all of the different diets here at the zoo. So if somebody specializes in, you know, domestic cat nutrition, that's very specific. And there's been a lot of research done in that field. But there really hasn't been a lot of research done with many of the zoo animals. So you tend to have to know that. But then also, yes, be able to kind of work with something that you know, and, and go from there. So you always tend to work with a lot of species. And, and that's sort of how my career has gone as well. So, mm. so we're going to hear about um, this new uh, monarch project. I don't know, are you into butterflies, Sophia? Or are you, you more like I a mean, mosquito who, person? Or? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I mess with both of them. But okay. uh, yeah, you got to be a real weirdo not to love butterflies. <laughs> um, that's true. <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about the monarch project. Yeah, so uh, it got started about five years ago. I think Amy wanted to kick it off with a little explanation about how the nation got involved with monarchs. Well, I think it really became public, the decline of the monarch butterfly, also about five years ago, um, when Obama, who was president at the time, actually um, created a pollinator health task force. And that really began the funding resources that were needed to start the work. Um, and that funding went to many different organizations. Um, one of them was the National Wildlife Federation that then um, began the Mayor's Monarch Pledge, which um, basically has 24 action items that a city or the mayor of a city can sign on to say that they will complete either all or part of those action items. So in 2015, um, Mayor Betsy Price signed on the city of Fort Worth to complete three. And then just recently in 2019, she signed on to com be a champion city. So complete all 24 action items. Mm. So. so in in terms of pollinators, I guess you don't, I feel like I don't hear as much about butterflies. It, it, it seems like uh, the bees uh, get all the headlines and be, bees are are uh, endangered and, and there we got to like build robot bees to figure out how to pollinate things so our, our entire agricultural system doesn't collapse. And that's what you hear a lot about. But we were talking yesterday and you said something like, was it 90%? 90% in the past 20 years of, of, of monarch butterflies declined had, in monarch. Had declined. Yes, yes yeah. correct. 90%. So what kind of an impact was that having on the environment? I know that's a very big, complicated question, but if you can just kind of give people a broad, um, uh, you know, ex explanation of, why that matters for the listeners yeah. for the listeners not terrified <laughs> right. by the by the well, sounds of a 90% yeah, decline i mean we we all know pollinators are important but i think the big thing is if this drastic decline is happening to monarchs i think it's more of an indicator about the environment in general is declining so i think rather than their decline impacting i think it's just kind of an indicator that there's something bigger going Be, on uh, so are are monarchs historically a pretty robust um species so this was is that why this was so unusual 
They really have been. I think it's been in the past 20 years that there's been a big change in kind of agricultural um, practices and such that has allowed for loss of habitat mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the use of um, pesticides, herbicides. Um, there are some interesting things about monarchs. One is that they lay their eggs only on a milkweed plant. And so in the Midwest, it's very important to have plenty of this milkweed plant as they're migrating, which of course we can talk a little bit more about their migration um, because it's one of the fascinating things about the monarch butterfly. But they only lay their eggs on the milkweed plant because that is the only plant that the caterpillars will eat. So if there's no milkweed, there's no food, no nutrients for the caterpillar. So that's a very important part of their their life cycle. Mm. And the milkweed was going away? Yes. Yeah. So farmers were intentionally spraying their crops to get rid of milkweed. They're viewed as a weed to a lot of agricultural businesses. Uh, So a lot of our crops have actually been genetically designed to withstand a lot of these herbicides, but the milkweed was not. Uh, And then, of course, all the fields where these farms are being built are typically fields where this milkweed was living. And so in having these crops being sprayed with herbicides, a lot of the milkweed was disappearing and that drastically impacted the population. And of course, that goes along as well with their conditions in Mexico. So one of the most amazing things about the monarch butterfly is the two-way migration. So you basically have these butterflies that spend the summer in the northern part of the United States or in Canada. And then in the fall, they migrate to Mexico and they winter in um, cities in in Mexico. One of them being um, they just discovered nesting monarchs in Toluca, which is a sister city for Fort Worth. Um, in very specific groves of trees. So what's fascinating is that one butterfly will make that migration from Canada to Mexico over the period of the fall. And then they're called the super generation because they don't breed. They just make the entire migration to Mexico. And then on the way back, you actually have four generations that fly north in the spring. So the the super generation will stay the winter in Mexico. And then in the spring, there's signals for them to fly north. And they will, they tend to lay their eggs perhaps in southern Texas and they'll breed. And then that generation will, you know, live for four to six weeks breed. And then, so it's actually the fourth generation that makes it all the way back to Mexico. Hmm. That's amazing. So they're carrying on their ancestors' migrations every time they do it. Yeah. And there's really not a lot known about how they know to do that. Why does that fourth generation live so long? You know, what exactly is it that makes them be able to live? They live up to about eight months, whereas the other generations are four to six weeks. They don't really know exactly what it is that, you know, causes them to live that long. But um, it's really interesting. They don't breed, so that is one of the reasons why they can have the the stamina, because they don't have to put their nutrients toward breeding, so they're able to use everything in their entirety for that migration. Wow. And so on a daily basis, you know, how, what, what kind of actions are you guys, you mentioned that there are a couple of items on, on the list there, those those pledges. What what are the, some of the cool programs that you're up to today? Also, I'm sorry. Going back, <laughs> just one second. Can 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 you say when when they don't breed? I guess I'm just a little confused. Mm-hmm. So so they fly all the way down from Canada to Mexico, not breeding. But then you said they lay their eggs. After Correct. That. Well, so they in the fall they fly from Canada to Mexico. One butterfly. 
But then in the spring, on the way back, they will use their last resources to breed in, say, southern Texas. They'll lay their eggs there. And then the next generation will fly further north. Hmm. So it's actually in the spring that they lay their eggs and then continue north. Hmm. Um, okay. Well, now that that's, I was like, why are they, if they don't breed, but they lay eggs. I, I <laughs> they don't breed in the fall. They, 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 they win the spring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, uh, all right. So now that that's cleared up, <laughs> Sophia, you were asking. Yeah, just about the, the, the programs, what's going on. So with the Mayor's Monarch Pledge, um, one of the ways that the National Wildlife Federation um, was able to help the different cities that signed on kind of begin their work with the project is they have um, somebody that actually works for National Wildlife Federation that travels to the different cities and helps them set up an organization to get started. Um, So they sent somebody here and we began a group called the Fort Worth Pollinator Ambassadors which is basically um, an organization where we collaborate with other people, such as um, the Tarrant Regional Water District, um, the Native Plant Society of Texas. We work with um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program. Um, And this became very important to us because it gave us a chance, especially since Rebecca and I were both new to this, to network with people that were already experts um, that perhaps had projects and then we could kind of come up with our own ideas. And eventually, though it it took a little bit while, we were able to receive some funding for and begin some of our our projects, which I think... um, our Prairie Restoration Project was kind of one of our first um, that we were very excited about. Yeah, I saw some pictures of that yesterday. I was curious, what was this mayoral pledge? How did it come about in the first place? This was something during the Obama administration that happened. So it's basically you had, it, why don't you Why don't you explain, explain it? it. Yeah. I was about yeah. to take a stab at speculating <laughs> on what it was. I'm like, yeah, yeah. you better take this one. <laughs> so the Mayor's Monarch Pledge was basically something that was put together by the National Wildlife Federation through funding that occurred because of the Obama administration Pollinator Health Task Force. So the funding was received, and then it was a way, especially um, the migration, it almost tends to occur along the I-35, which is a major interstate that runs north to south. Mm -hmm. And it actually is a bit of the migration route for the butterflies. There's lots of sunlight along the highway, open areas. It actually is um, a good route for the butterflies as as well as the cars. So initially, it was for um, cities along the the highway. And of course, it has expanded as well um, to sign on, but basically a way to get cities more involved. Um, The mayor could sign this pledge and that they would do three to 24 action items, um, including increasing pollinator habitat in the city. So when Mayor Price, our current Fort Worth mayor, signed the pledge, that really gave the um, support that we needed to begin some of our work here. And she signed actually a proclamation. So it kind of put the responsibility back on the city saying that they will, you know, allocate resources and and make sure that she's actually going to do what this pledge says that she's going to do. So there is a member of the city 
uh, who joins us in these meetings occasionally and make sure that they're they're helping us and giving us resources to we're doing what we're doing so 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 this pledge of a bunch of mayors throughout the state there's kind of like pressure for all of them to to sign up and and play a role in all of this yeah it, it's kind of a competition too so i mean the fact that we're a champion city now i think it's kind of you know encouraging i think the city of arlington now is trying to work on becoming a a champion city i think uh, san antonio is also a champion city I'm sure Dallas will soon follow, but there actually was a mayor's summit I, where a lot of mayors gathered and they kind of like to say, you know, hey, well, we're doing this. And, and it encourages a bunch of the other cities to say, well, we want to be able to say that we're doing that, too, which is great because it ends up helping the environment in the end. That's so. amazing. Yeah. Well, it's 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 uh, Texans are a prideful folk. Oh, yes. So, so yes. any yes. time you can kind of steer that for yes. good. Yes. No, we're going to make the most butterflies. <laughs> it, yeah, it was it was pretty funny to, to watch them get pretty pumped up about we love the butterflies and yeah. And the monarch is actually the Texas state insect and it helps that it's I mean that's one of the few insects that people can oh we, you know most everybody knows about the monarch and loves monarchs and so it's actually kind of neat that this is the species that we're focusing on it's, I feel like it's, it's easy a, to get love for that yeah yeah it's a sellable uh, yeah. it, there, there's probably not a lot of people that you run into that are like I don't like butterflies right sorry right. just everybody not a, wants just not a butterfly person <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everybody wants a chance for their kids to be able to see the monarch and learn about them. Of yeah, course. And it, actually, I was as you were saying this, I, I was wondering, is there like some perfect time or do you guys ever do like tours or anything? Is there some perfect time of year in some place where you can see a huge migration? Well, I it? think that visiting Mexico and going to see the all of the butterflies and the way they roost on the trees is probably one of the more amazing things you can do. Mm-hmm. I know that in not so much fall 2019, fall 2018, we had an outstanding migration right through central Texas. And where I live, which is about 30 miles west of here, we had, you know, hundreds of monarch butterflies on our property, but it had been a very wet year and there was lots of lots of growth and pollinator plants, lots of pollen available for them. Um, just recently, we were at a, a Fort Worth pollinator ambassador meeting and I was saying, well, I didn't see very many butterflies go through this year. You know, is that a bad sign? And they made the point that sometimes the butterflies may head a different direction, um, you know, based on cues. So perhaps we had a dry year this year. Maybe they, you know, went migrated slightly west um, where there's more pollen, more energy available. Um, So as far as locations to visit, I I know there are certain areas in Texas where they, they tend to have more butterflies. I'm sure going to someplace like the Lady Bird Johnson Center in um, just outside of Austin, Texas, I believe, you know, or any botanical garden. Um, in October, we um, our botanical garden hosted an event where they also released monarch butterflies. Um, and so going to probably one of those events would be a great idea. What, what time of year is that? About. It tends to be around October when they okay. migrate through in the fall. We're missing all the swarming. We're not going to get the yeah. Austin bats this time <laughs> around right. either because we're know, going to Austin yeah. tomorrow. But I think, too, that's part of the goal of this project is to bring back the habitat so that we can have locations that we can bring, you know, our campers or students out 
to see, you know, the, the plants that these butterflies depend on and to actually see the butterflies. So eventually I'd love, you know, we've got one of our locations. It's just right across the street from the zoo. So I'm hoping the goal one day is that we can have our kids just walk across the street and be able to see them migrating through and, and learn about that. Hmm. So these action items, it's, is it as simple as just planting a lot of milkweed or what, what, what are like the, what's, what's in your seed bag there? You got the pledge. What was like step one? Oh gosh. I mean, there's 24 of them. I know that a couple of them have to do with policy making for the city. So getting them to agree to do later mow, uh, later mowing ordinances, um, no mow zones for wildlife areas, uh, less herbicide, um, I think educating the maintenance crews about how to identify um, wildflower areas. So that was a lot of it. Another also is just building more uh, butterfly gardens, I believe. So increasing our, our green space in our city. A lot of them were actions that we had already accomplished. And just by gathering all these organizations together and kind of making a list of everything we've been doing, we accomplished a majority of those actions already. I don't know, Amy, can you remember any specific? Well, specifically here, I think the route that Rebecca and I went was to try to increase um, pollinator habitat in and around the zoo. So we were thinking about how we could obtain funding for what we needed to do. And because we didn't um, ha- did not have experience with this yet, we were taking steps to figure out what the best project might be for us, the way to increase pollinator habitat. And so initially, um, we were thinking about a location that maybe already has some milkweed, and we could just increase the density of that milkweed, because it's incredibly difficult to grow this plant that it's funny because it, it is a weed and you'll see it growing under the tread marks where, you know, a, a semi went by, but yet it takes two years to propagate, you know, from seed in a greenhouse. And even the people with the greenest thumbs, which I certainly don't have, aren't able to grow milkweed from seed because it's incredibly difficult. So initially, we were hoping to perhaps work with um, Fossil Rim Wildlife Center, which is about an hour away from here. And it's um, a drive through Safari Park, and they have quite a bit of land. And so we were going to survey their milkweed and try to increase the density of milkweed at Fossil Rim. Um, But because they're about an hour away from us, you know, we had the suggestion Um, that, you know, we have a a major tributary that goes right through Fort Worth, um, the Fort Worth Trinity River. And the director of our zoo, Michael Foraker, was like, you know, the river is right here. And that's an incredible place to start maybe enhancing. So that started us on the path to find out, okay, who do we talk to with uh, um, the, it's actually the Tarrant Regional Water District, who do we find to talk to, to find out if we can work on uh, the Trinity River banks and that in itself sometimes finding the right people to talk to is is difficult but um but we did and and they've been very supportive um we also um within that time got to know missy singleton um with the u.s fish and wildlife service she works for the partners for fish and wildlife program and we're able to, I mentioned before, receive some funding from them to um, do some prey restoration specifically around the zoo. So um, that is sort of our take um, when we have these pollinator ambassador meetings on what Rebecca and I's kind of teamwork is for the, the pledge to increase habitat around the, the zoo nearby. So, 
it seems like because as we were mentioning mentioning earlier everyone loves butterflies everyone's pro monarch and and especially maybe even texas knowing that it's the what is it the the state the insect? state insect insect yeah who chooses these things how does that happen i i love those little things <laughs> right? uh, yeah that's Please walk Sparky for me. No way. <laughs> I'll throw in a caramel frappe. Ooh, make it a large. Deal. Get a sweet deal. $2 any size McCafe beverage on the McDonald's app. Between you and me, Sparky, I would have walked you for free. <laughs> Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Offer valid through 4322 or participate in McDonald's. Valid one time per day. McDonald's app download and registration required. I don't know what... Wisconsin State. You know your state insect? I'm no ashamed to say I don't. <laughs> I, did, I did not know until this project yeah. got started. So. Uh, I would imagine that's more common not to know. <laughs> but I was I was curious, is there any kind of public outreach that you do in, in terms of, I know maybe you're working with um, farmers in, in city land and making some changes along the riverbank and everything. But is there, uh, like when you talked about mowing, is is there any public outreach of like, hey guys, I I know it's culturally we tend to like this well manicured lawn, but actually there's other ways of having uh, uh, yards. The most that, challenging uh, part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really? <laughs> I know. Yeah. People love their, their nice manicured lawns. I mean, really? I, I mean, I, I know that probably yeah. drives you guys crazy. I've talked with other scientists about this <laughs> yes, before right. and it just seems yeah. like a waste of what, yeah. what could be um, a, a great space for adding to biodiversity mm-hmm. and yeah. increasing uh, nature and life on this planet would be if, if people just allowed their lawns to grow a little more naturally. Yeah. It's definitely been interesting because, you know, we do a lot of work out along the Trinity and Amy and I are just, you know, walking up and down the trails and there's a lot of activity of people running and uh, riding their bikes. And so we get stopped a lot asking what we're doing. And so people are very interested in what we're, we're up to when we tell them we're doing monarch conservation and we're monitoring milkweed. And, uh, we've put out a lot of signs that say low mo zones or no mo zones. And so far those have all been, uh, you know, they're, they're listening to us. We haven't had much, uh, accidental mowing or anything like that, but, mm. um, well, I say that we've had one. <laughs> Uh, incident, a horrible mowing okay. accident. It's, you know, we'll, we'll forgive them for that. But um, no, I mean, there's a lot of public interest, especially with schools. We get a lot of teachers reach out to us. We're actually working with one school right now on getting their, um, what is it, a butterfly garden going. It's actually Amy's daughter's school is really interested. So that's been fun. Yeah, that is one. Um, we really would like it to be a huge part of this project as well, is working with schools. So the same organization, um, Fish and Wildlife, that funded our work also um, will fund school habitats and outdoor classrooms. So um, my daughters, Lucy and Mia, attend North Elementary, which is um, White Settlement. It's a school district west of here. And it's um, STEAM-based education, so science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, more of a project-based learning. So they're, they're new with this STEAM program. And so this is one of the first years that in the spring, um, actually the second graders, I'll be working with a teacher, Shannon Wilson, um, they will develop their own 
outdoor classroom, basically, these second graders. They will plan and design it and then actually present it to the school administration, to the school board, and to um, local people, the public, to try to get the approval for it. And then um, hopefully they obtain the approval and then they'll actually um, build their um, pollinator area in the spring. So it's an amazing project-based learning for, for these kids. And I really feel that's the best way for them to learn. And I think that um, we've worked with several schools in the, the past, but one thing about being with the Fort Worth Sioux is that you know we have over a million visitors a year. So um, we have, Rebecca mentioned our um, pollinator restoration project on the Riverside, which um, I know she can probably talk about how we went about that, but we started there because it was a little more off the grid. But now that we've had some success with that area, we now have an area in our zoo parking lot that we're working on, several areas actually. So we have signage in our parking lot about our um, pollinator restoration. And it's temporary signage right now, but once we establish um, these areas, we'll have more permanent signage. Um, so as these you know, million guests every year come and go from the zoo, they will be able to see the signage and, and be educated. Um, but also the area that we have along the Trinity River is, like Rebecca said, a, a major hub for people that are biking or walking or exercising at lunch. So we will have permanent signage there as well. Or Rebecca, if you want to talk a, a little bit about how we started the restoration project. Oh, yeah. So our prayer restoration, uh, which is just right across the street from the zoo, uh, is we call it a little pocket prairie. So it was this really kind of ideal uh, surrounded by some some woods and right along the riverbank, a nice little patch of grass. And so we started by solarizing, which is essentially just laying out a massive 10 by 10 tarp in the middle of Texas summer and let everything underneath that tarp die off. So we can kind of start with a clean slate, get rid of some invasive and, and unwanted grass grasses and then we uh, got some native uh, pollinator seed mixes so a lot of wildflowers and milkweed seeds spread those out uh, and watered it which was always fun we tried to water from uh, bucketing water from the river and we realized that was a little bit more uh, manpower than we were willing to do walk up and down the hill through waist high <laughs> weeds which is fun but uh, yeah so we did that and we would continue to move the tarp uh, further along until we've eventually solarized and seeded the entire plot of land and we've actually seen a lot of growth from that so hmm. yeah is is this something that that say there was a listener in Fort Worth right now and they're you know it, it, I get that people have their lawns and everyone's competing over who has the nicest lawn and everything, but everyone has backyards. Is, is this something that if, if you could explain this to people and be like, Hey, you, you can basically make kind of a butterfly garden for yeah. yourself. Is, is this something, would it actually work or does all of this need to be in kind of the same area or around, but it, or, or yeah. is, if there was just like some patches here and there in people's backyards, yeah, would that so, make an impact? Yeah, part of our method is we really wanted to kind of prove that this there's a method beyond doing pro formal propagation in greenhouses and all these other really high-tech things that other people are doing. We wanted to show that this is a fairly straightforward, easy, simple process and it can be successful, mainly because we wanted to be able to do it in other areas along the riverbank and in areas in the zoo. But certainly, I mean, if you've got a nice sunny patch in your yard, you don't have to do a 10 by 10 tarp. That might be a little huge, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's been very successful and we definitely 
wanted to sh- prove that this is something that just about anybody can can do. No, because you get it started with like a three by three, uh-huh. you know, and then that neighbor yep. shows that off. And then the next exactly. guy's like, oh, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. I'm making a five yep. by five butterfly yep. garden. Well, or I'm and sure. Then, yeah. Anybody has a piece and then of it scales up from there. Yeah. A piece of junk or, a, you know, a playground mm-hmm. area in your yard. You just move that over and that dead grass just put some seed on top of it. And there you go. You're done. <laughs> And I think making it a competition between people, I know that one of the projects that um, our group, along with some of these other groups that were put together through the Mayor's Monarch Pledge, is to find where all these areas are, because so many people want to have pollinator areas or gardens in their backyard. We are going about it more as like, okay, we want to restore native prairie, because the area where we are in Texas is more of native grassland. And so we're trying to make it very low maintenance. And some people have very high maintenance, beautiful gardens that they put together and they have monarchs and other pollinators visit. But we would actually like to be able to to monitor where all of these areas are because connectivity of all these areas is so important for the for the butterflies and other pollinators. So I, I believe it was St. Louis that almost had a, a competition. Okay, how many people can have a garden and how many can we get in a year? And, you know, can we get these areas um, located on a map? So one of the things that we would like to continue to do with our project is use GIS or a geographic informational system and then GPS to mark where these areas are. And there's organizations that are already doing this. One of the ones that was um, put together as well with some of the funding that was received is Monarch Joint Venture. And so they have some maps established where people have all of these different areas, including, you know, huge ranches, of course, that have grasslands. And so that is definitely something we would like to do in Fort Worth as well, is so many people have these areas where they plant. And it doesn't even have, yeah, you mentioned three by three. It doesn't have to be 10 by 10 necessarily. They they will find it. The, it's amazing how um, the monarchs and the bees can find these small areas. Um, we had one area along one of our back rhino roads and it, one little corner, probably three by three, we didn't even solarize it. We just were like, let's throw down some seed and see what happens. And in the spring, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And we saw so many butterflies in that little area. So I, I think it's important not to feel like I don't have a green thumb. I can't do this when it really can be almost as simple as in the fall, throwing down some native. It, it's very important that it's native seed and native milkweed. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about using tropical milkweed and planting tropical milkweed for the butterflies. And this is a milkweed plant that actually in Texas will, it will stay alive all year, which is actually not great for the butterflies because they should be migrating on. So if the tropical milkweed is is still there, it encourages the butterflies to Uh, stay. So mm. if you, it's easier to grow than native milkweed sometimes, um, easier to find. But the important thing is if you do have it, be sure that you cut it back so that you can encourage the um, butterflies to migrate as they normally would. And you said planting in the fall? So it's important to seed in the fall because they actually lay dormant over the winter and then you have good growth in the spring. So for these particular pollinator plants that we're working with, seeding in the fall is the ideal time because the seeds, and I 
I don't think either of us are plant people, so I don't know if I could say why, but it's important for them to lay dormant over the winter. Yeah, they need a good freeze to make them successful in the summertime or in the spring. So we're talking a lot about um, Fort Worth and in Texas, but what is the um, uh, the impact of how much area in what parts of our country and Canada and Mexico are our butterflies are or this particular these monarch butterflies that that you're trying to help what are the areas impacted by this I mean there's so we're working with the eastern monarch population which is east of the Rockies and there's also a western population west of the Rockies so I mean you essentially could say our entire country has mm-hmm. monarchs, but essentially it's it's the Midwest, Texas, and then towards California is mainly where they're located. But I mean, you they're essentially all over America. So I think that in the Midwest, as they're flying through, it's especially when they're um, breeding in the spring, um, it's important to have a lot of that milkweed in the Midwest. It may not be as important where we are. This is one of the things that we notice because we one of our projects also is enhancing um, pollinator plants along the Trinity Riverbanks and also monitoring the milkweed along the riverbank. And one thing we noticed is that in the Let's see, in the fall, there wasn't as much milkweed as we thought there might be. Mm-hmm. And then also in the spring, it doesn't seem to come up until after the butterflies are already through. So I think that in the, the Midwest, where they're doing more of the breeding, it's it's important to have more of a milkweed population there. Um, and it's important. Texas is kind of a funnel. So these butterflies are coming down through the central United States and then also from New York, from the eastern United States. So we talk about, of course, we're here in Texas and in Fort Worth but Texas is actually a funnel for all these butterflies coming through to Mexico. So yeah, it's, it's important for us to kind of have some of the pollinator plants, the flowering plants, so they can get the nutrients and the resources to keep going. Like a gas station. You t- yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Most of the action happens mm-hmm. north and south of us, mm-hmm. but it's important for them to have a lot of the nectaring plants to get energy in, in places like that. Yeah. Now, are there any... Are there any uh, how selective do you have to be with the milkweed that you're planting? Because it's my, if I'm remembering this right, milkweed has a natural defense against caterpillars, right? They tend to have, they probably have some polyphenolics or secondary plant compounds, which is one of the reasons probably that the monarch butterfly um, evolved to to consume this milkweed because it makes it taste bad, basically. So you can see if, say, you have a pasture with horses in it, you'll see all the other plants eaten down, but the milkweed is still standing because it doesn't taste good to the horses. And it also doesn't taste good if another animal is going to consume the butterfly. So that's why you also see that some other butterflies mimic the monarch because the monarch consumes this milkweed, which has these um, plant defense compounds, polyphenolics in it, and gives it more of a bitter flavor. So they're not going to be a very good um, tasting you know, meal for another animal. And so these other butterflies mimic them so that they don't get eaten as well. Are there any things that you have to watch out for when you are when you are seeding um, milkweed and what was the other thing that you said that you you seed in uh, wildflowers wildflowers yeah. yeah so you're seeding wildflowers and milkweeds do you 
do you ever have to before I um, become a milkweed evangelist, which I do plan on going door to door, knocking on <laughs> yes, people's door, asking them, Save if, milkweed. <laughs> I, yeah, I got I got yes. some milkweed in my trunk. If you guys <laughs> yeah, want, yes, there's free yeah. milkweed. Here, I'll help you install it. Um, are there any things that, that people have to watch out for a little bit in terms of like, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm like telling all my listeners, get out there, get that milkweed, get on the milkweed train. But, but I don't, you know, I don't want to get an angry email two months from yeah, now. Like right, we planted this right. <laughs> two by two patch of milkweed and now it's, now my whole house is milkweed. We haven't found, we don't know where Spot is. He's out there in the milkweed somewhere. Spot's the name of their dog. And, um, <laughs> Yeah. So I know if you're buying plant mixes, a lot of the wildflower mixes do have grasses in them. So we do kind of have to, a lot of the gardening people will have to remind us, hey, if you're telling everybody to plant with these wildflower mixes, don't tell them spread it in your nice pruned garden because you're going to get grass showing up or it's native grasses. They're important. But also milkweed is fairly expensive. Um, So buying it by the seed was, it made more sense for us. But if you're wanting to plant it in your backyard and you go to your local you know greenhouse store or wherever um, buying it actually pre-planted it's going to be fairly expensive so it is really hard to to find mm-hmm. so I think most people have trouble having milkweed grow versus having too much milkweed in their mm. in their gardens so um yeah, I think that's one that, more thing yeah. to brag about when you are. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I, they do. Any anytime we yeah. have these meetings, oh my goodness, Absolutely. those plant people go after mm-hmm. it. All these different crazy techniques they've been trying, and how proud they are that yes. they got Green one milky. plant to survive. And, <laughs> and then, like I said, they're, yeah, yes. they're very passionate about it. <laughs> and then we walk along the trail because we're also using um, GIS to monitor the milkweed along the trail. And it's incredible. You'll see this rocky outpost where, you know, it looks like there's no good soil or nutrients and there's a beautiful milkweed plant. So it's almost as if if you give it too much care, then it doesn't do very well versus. And and so I think what we decided to do, because we were wanting to increase the density of milkweed along the trail, is um, we do collect seeds sometimes as well, but basically we just go and kind of help it along. And I, somebody suggested that we just use a tennis racket, and when it looks like the the pot is about to open, we just whack it and you know kind of help that seed disperse. And that that almost seems to be one of the the best ways to get you know the milkweed to grow. <laughs> I'm picturing you guys out there with like the hats and the yeah, like, tennis racket, doing yeah. everything. You're like two human pollinators, yeah. just many hands. Yeah. It's amazing. Tennis racket day's got to be the fun day. Yeah. Um, do you? Uh, that that's the that's a new summer camp activity, right? Yeah, we give totally give those kids some tennis yep. rackets. That's true. I hadn't thought milkweed. about that. We right? can we can get them on board with that. That's three year old stress relief as well. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Uh, and by the way, I should I should tell my listeners. So we aren't they um, Amy and Rebecca do a lot of things at the zoo here. This is one project, and mm-hmm. I, uh, they aren't necessarily butterfly researchers. And so. I, I don't expect you to know every single thing that there is to know about the monarch, but what um, what are their predators, their main predators? Birds. Just I would b- say. B- <laughs> birds generally. <laughs> We're like a- I'm I'm glad that I started that with 
I don't expect you guys to know this next question. The point was I, there, I, I, I thought know. maybe you might know this particular species. My my the pie in the sky hope for that question was that you're like, well, I'm glad you asked that because there's also an endangered bird we, that is benefiting from there worse. being more. No, I like get rid of the birds. I don't know that <laughs> they really have there's too many a parasite. Predators, there is there is a parasite that I know it's an issue with captive mm-hmm. bred. You know, teachers can go online and purchase monarchs that you can breed in your classroom and have this beautiful monarch release and I've, I have been reading that there is I don't remember the name of it but some sort of parasite that can be found on these monarchs that um, if they're captive bred it's a big issue that it can mm-hmm. spread Yep, and there probably will be some people that have studied monarchs for years and years that will listen to this podcast. So (laughs) we really are just, you know, a little bit. um, We don't have green thumbs, maybe a little bit green with monarch knowledge, but we're certainly very passionate about it and um, definitely promote always planting native plants native to your area. And there are some um, very easy ways. You know, there are so many websites now that are dedicated to this where you can, the National Wildlife Federation, nwf.org, has many, um, you know, helpful tips on their website. Even, you know, whether you're somebody with a backyard, whether you're a school, they have the Monarch Heroes program for schools where they actually have funding along with curriculum um, to establish the best way to go about this. Um, The Fort Worth pollinator ambassadors. Um, We have a a Facebook page at this point. There's also a link on our city website um, where they'll tell you for this area, native plants that are are good. Um, You know, we talk about milkweed. We talked a little bit about tropical milkweed and, and there's always debate back and forth about what the best practices are, but there are certainly a lot of online resources for for your um, area, your local area that you can look up to see what the best thing is to do yeah and getting that city webpage was a really big success for <laughs> for us it it's very difficult to to get the city to want to add another page mm-hmm. another thing for them to to have to work on for their IT but we were able to get that up and running and we were very proud of that so and and speaking of success for um, we're excited because today along with planting natives another huge thing is um, getting rid of invasive plants a lot of times um, certain species are brought over because they're ornamental or they may seem like oh that'll you know block this area and it grows fast so let's plant that and then all of a sudden it it gets out of control and um, Japanese privet is something that is very common in this area and when you see a wooded area you're very unlikely to see a wooded area where the undergrowth is not completely Japanese privet and so it chokes out all of the native plants that would typically grow in that area so um, our prairie restoration area that is across the street from us at the zoo here Rebecca mentioned there's also a tree grove over there and so we have worked closely with the city of Fort Worth the park and recreation department and they are actually began today they're out there removing the privet from that wooded area and And we are beyond excited about that because there's been published research about how once you remove those invasive species, the natives come back, you know, the native butterflies, native bees. So along with our our grassland, we'll also have um, this 
area, this tree grove that will have native undergrowth, which as soon as we get some educational signage, we have temporary signage out there explaining why we're removing the privet, because for some people it could say, hey, you know, that was green and pretty and, you know, looked beautiful. So we definitely want to educate people about why we're removing that. So Rebecca and I are are super excited today about the start of that. Privet is like the arch nemesis of any person working (laughs) with plants or anything like that. So this is a big accomplishment for the uh, gardening plant community today so so how do you how do you get rid of it what do you do they're in there right now with some really massive equipment i believe they called it the shark they're essentially just going through and cutting down any uh, they know what privet looks like they're identifying that in any tree that's smaller than i believe six inches in diameter they're just removing it so any of those massive oak trees that are in there they're going to leave those alone but they also identified a couple other invasive trees like hackberries and they're just literally cutting it all down (laughs) originally rebecca and i were going to try to tackle it on our own and i think uh, i had my guys you have all (laughs) these you have all these children (laughs) at your disposal (laughs) you aren't you aren't thinking through this you can teach these kids how to mop there's a million things they could be doing some some good child labor opportunity there no no, no, i don't think that we want to promote that but no so amy had been bragging at the beginning of this project Mm-hmm. how she had never gotten poison ivy and when we oh, decided we went in yes yes I, I was need karma in got poison her ivy. both of us and we actually got it so this is a lesson for your listeners actually so uh poison ivy roots are also very uh <laughs> toxic and you can get reactions from the roots so what we thought were privet roots and we were down on our hands and <laughs> oh, knees pulling up roots gosh. pulling up roots oh. we had we just both down had, there <laughs> bragging about your we were right I must yeah. be immune to poison ivy taking aggression out on those things we were so proud of ourselves yeah, i made it 45 years and i grew up in the country i was around poison <laughs> ivy a lot and yeah can you guys wear gopros for the next season when you're out there just to show like you know what it takes to be a human <laughs> right I don't think we plan on doing that again, but maybe. maybe No, we are so careful now. We're more in, you know, gloves and long sleeves. I I never realized how bad poison ivy is, so I apologize (laughs) if I ever never completely empathized. It's horrible. Um, When when talking about this, uh, sorry, is it privet? Yes. Yes, correct. I mean, it sounds like an undertaking. How how large of an area has this privet invaded so far? Gosh, well, the area that we're working on is less than half an acre. But if you, I mean, I would say in this area of Texas, I think, you know, you can't find a tree grove that doesn't have it. So yeah, I would I mean, say you, you could be driving down the road and you'll mm-hmm. see it everywhere i mean it's everywhere yeah if we pointed it out to you then all of a sudden you would drive you like oh there it is there it is i can i can no longer look Mm -hmm. at at landscapes and think oh how beautiful Mm -hmm. because all i see is the privet it's it's very invasive you just gotta you just gotta hijack that competition and again you just call it a war with privet we've won one battle but there is still yeah. a war going and we are so excited to have the city support for that as well that they were willing to come in and take yeah. care of it for us because we would still be out there with poison ivy trying to <laughs> and our little clippers trying to take yeah. care of it <laughs> i mean this does feel like something you could do is like bill it as a community activity with, with 
with not just that, but uh, the planting of the wildflowers and, and milkweed and everything. Why why not advertise it as a like on on this uh, Saturday of this month? We're going to go out and see how many people sign up. I'm just brainstorming yeah, yeah. here. No, yeah. absolutely. And other members of our organization, there is a, a city pool that's nearby and they were planting a pollinator garden at that city pool and they made it a community event. They often make it a community event and advertise for anybody to please come help out. We had talked, um, especially when we were talking to Tarrant Regional Water District about this privet removal and they mentioned, oh, get the Eagle Scouts in there, mm-hmm. you know, look for an organization that wants to do um, donate some time with a a, a worthy project. Um, so the problem with the privet removal for that one in particular was poison, the poison ivy. ivy. <laughs> I mean, even the city was like, this is going to be an issue with the poison exactly. ivy. Right. So. Um, but yeah. community events absolutely are a fabulous idea. And we, some other members of our organization have definitely worked with that. We will absolutely, especially since this is new to us, we wanted to get our feet wet and make sure that we had a good understanding of what we were doing. But like Rebecca said, our plan is to include our education campers and um, especially, you know, if we have Native Prairie already, there's different um, citizen science programs that you can participate in where you can just, you know, download a program on your phone and keep track. Um, One is called the, um, let's see, the Monarch Larva Monitoring Program, MLMP. And you can, um, in the spring, go out and look for eggs or caterpillars and monitor it and then actually, um, you know, send your data to these different organizations um, and they coordinate all the data and can have bigger picture research and see how the population is going. So citizen science is very important, too, for gathering data. So if you guys had unlimited funding and if you had an unlimited task force like think big here what is the dream project you would undertake for these for these pollinators I think that working with private landowners so Texas is 99% private land and so having the opportunity to work with those landowners to establish more of the native grassland Um, And really, it's not just benefiting the monarch butterflies when you work with them, because there are other species that benefit from um, the grasslands like pheasant and quail, as well as it also when you have these areas, you know, hunting is a huge thing in Texas, and it provides areas for hunting as well. So and, and for people that may not hunt, but wildlife observation. So having these, you know, ranchers basically working with them to increase milkweed density, not to get rid of the milkweed, but also also making sure that we're staying working with them so that they are accomplishing what they want to as well. So I think for us, you know, the 99% private land, that would be the main thing to do is to get the word out and work with these ranchers. That would be a great place to end, but I just have one more question. <laughs> so hopefully it goes well. I, I have, uh, as you're talking about competition, I was thinking about all the things that you have going on in the zoo. Does it ever get competitive around here? Like, is is the skunk guy listening right now, just <laughs> fuming? Like, all, all the butterflies get all the uh, get all the headlines, and, and and oh, I get it. We all like butterflies. We need skunks too. No one will talk to me. How do you? My more serious question is: when when you guys get together and decide what uh, Rebecca is doing, so much public outreach. Is your title public outreach coordinator or uh, education coordinator? Education coordinator. 
how do you how do you decide what's the kind of do you, does everyone sit around and brainstorm and be like these are the things that we want to highlight at this time in this se- in this season or how how do you land on the projects that you do Oh man, well I would say Amy and I, because our project is fairly new compared to other projects going on in the zoo, usually we're the ones like, hey, give us, you know, we want the shout out or the attention or the funding. So usually we're the ones trying to. So this <laughs> is a really big thing I know, so we were right, very excited. Yes, we are excited. <laughs> there were a lot of other projects y'all could have had, so. The zoo is very supportive of conservation. So there right. are lots of ongoing projects here. And um, we are able to, of course, you know, give our time and efforts um, that the zoo supports in that way to this project. And then a lot of um, the different, um, you know, you may end up talking to um, Kelly, who works with iguanas. Sometimes we get outside funding as well. Like we mentioned we got funding from TRWD and the Fish and Wildlife Partners Program. So the zoo is very supportive of all the efforts. And then typically um, we're reaching out for money from different organizations. And so we don't have to be too competitive. There tends to be like the International Rhino Foundation supports rhino projects mm-hmm. or the International Iguana Foundation gives grants for iguana projects. So typically we don't have to be too competitive with people here um and i hope we try to work as a team (laughs) yeah Yeah, well i I just kind of wanted to bring it up just Mm -hmm. just so listeners because fort worth zoo is uh considered as listed among one of the top five zoos Mm -hmm. in the entire country and um I, i i would agree and in the little bits um, that I've seen of what the public's been mostly treated to behind the scenes right. uh, exciting tours. <laughs> um, but uh, but it, it's something that listeners can go to fortworthzoo.org and you can see all of the many different projects going on because you may be listening to this two years after it was recorded and there might be all sorts of new things going on so or check out a zoo in your area everybody zoos why aren't people uh, at zoos more all the time. Like, they should be it's it's amazing it's not just something you should do a couple times when you're a kid adults can go to zoos as well um i don't like this up until high school summer camp restriction by the way i i want we need an adult summer (laughs) we did have one adult camp we did have an adult Mm -hmm. camp it's definitely something we're working on so amazing yeah well thank you so much rebecca gonzalez and amy koslick for joining us today thank you sophia thank you you. and thank you listeners for being such wonderful Curious people, we'll talk with you next week. On the next Here We Are podcast, special bonus episode for you guys, talking about the latest trip to Michael Meditations in Jamaica with my comic friend Steve Gillespie and my assistant Rihanna Andrews. We're going to be talking all about the trip, what we do with Michael Meditations and the psilocybin assisted retreat there, as well as we have offerings coming up for next January. We're going to do it in October, but we are able to instead push back to next January. Um, uh, uh, so 2021. And the reason why we pushed back was because we're going to be uh, now have the opportunity to do two different retreats um, back to back so you can pick the one that fits your budget and lifestyle. There's a classic retreat 
and then there's a comfort retreat that's a bit more money, a bit more um, nicer accommodations, nicer food, that that sort of stuff. So depending on what you have the money for and what you fancy, there's going to be two options for you now. So we'll be talking all about that. Super interesting, amazing time. And then after that, uh, so that's that's just a bonus episode because it's not really a, a science episode. Um, we're having uh, next academic next week will be John Vanden Brooks talking all about bird flight and bird metabolism and how these things uh, evolved to have the exact kind of metabolism needed for um, for flying and how metabolic constraints and opportunities changed the way in which birds evolved. Super fun guest and my wonderful guest co-host, um, sometimes guest co-host Sophia Rockland is joining me for that as well. So make sure and check that out. Check us out on the Head Talks tour. And uh, yeah, those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites. Today's outro music is brought to you by Moon Station Burning. If you want to discover more great indie music, check out Jimmy Fro's Indie Music Show on iTunes Podcast today. Jimmy is the editor of this podcast and also has a fantastic ear for discovering great new music. So check out Jimmy Fro's Indie Music Show today.
Scarpins Avenue, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.